cutting these cords. <laughs> All right, there we go. <sighs> How y'all doing? Good. Holiday weekend. And uh, I was saying to Pam yesterday, or sometime in the last day or two, we had, uh, we had set some specific strategic days for, uh, for prayer time, for uh, some special prayer events. And uh, when I set those dates, I didn't realize how quickly August was sneaking up on us. And uh, so one of them is tonight, um, and, uh, and it's holiday weekend. So if you're able to join, I'll be here. I'll be praying 6 o'clock. Uh, if you're able to join, great. If you've got family stuff going on, I, we totally understand. But uh, uh, we want to pray for our city. Believe God is up to something good. Amen. Can, uh, can you guys switch me over there, please, and thanks? would be good. And, uh, and Jordan, if you could grab this row of lights here, that would, be, that would help too. Thanks. Good. Well, today we're uh, starting a, a series uh, that will take us through the rest of the summer, take us through the rest of August. And, uh, and this series is called Beauty for Ashes, and it comes out of, well, not the whole series, but uh, the idea comes out of uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, and that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have Bibles or Bible apps, you can turn there, Isaiah 61, and we'll, uh, we'll dive in there in a moment. The, uh, as I said last week, I, I don't intend for this series uh, to be a downer. Um, in fact, I think the exact opposite. I think it's, uh, it's the answer to our downers. This series is, is hope in the midst of our downers. How many have downers? You, you, have, you have days that just stink, right? Days that are just rotten. Sometimes a whole week. Sometimes even a month, right? There are seasons we walk through that, if we're honest, just are not fun, right? And... And yet, in the midst of those seasons, God hasn't gone anywhere. Sometimes, I think we're tempted to believe otherwise. I know I am. When I'm going through a season that's hard, I can be tempted to believe that God has somehow evaporated, right? Like, where did He go? He was with me, things were going well, and then all of a sudden things were not going well. So God must have gone with Pastor Graham on vacation. But, um, but God doesn't take vacations. And He's with us in every season, no matter what it feels like. 
Sometimes we're far too easily led by our feelings. And the point of this series is to is to center our hearts and our minds on truth so that we will not be led by our feelings. To to return to understanding who is God and what is He doing when I'm having a really challenging season in my life. And as we center our hearts and our minds on Him, then, um, then when those feelings come, feelings of disappointment, feelings of confusion, feelings of abandonment, feelings of whatever we feel when we're walking through those seasons, we can, we can get our minds and our hearts back on track instead of being led off by our feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> let's read through this passage first, maybe. Read through it all, and then we're going to take it in chunks. Um, Isaiah 61, and, and this is a really, it's a really significant passage for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why this passage is so key and significant is that in Luke 4, verse 18, we find Jesus walking into a synagogue on a Sabbath, being invited as the guest speaker on Sabbath service. And Jesus steps up to the podium, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah to this very place, and reads this passage exact things that we're going we're gonna to read this morning. And he reads these verses and he rolls up the scroll and then he looks them in the eye and he says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing today. In other words, he is the fulfillment of these words. That's what he's saying. So you think that makes it maybe an important passage of Scripture, right? That this is actually, this was, this was maybe, maybe the first sermon, at least it was in, the, in Luke's gospel, was maybe the first message he ever spoke. So that makes it pretty significant. Because Jesus was saying, this is what my ministry is about. This is what my kingdom is is about. This isn't just a, a, nice, a nice sermon you hear on a warm July 31st Sunday morning and then you go home and forget what you heard by lunchtime. This is, this is what my kingdom is about, Jesus is saying, right? The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Actually, I've got it Got it up here. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Let's pause there just for a minute because in the, in the Hebrew in this passage, what it says there, the Spirit of 
Adonai Yahweh. That's what it says. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai is a name, here they translate it as sovereign, but it's, it's, it's Lord, it's King, it's Master, all those things, right? So really, the spirit of King Yahweh is upon me. That's what, that's what this really is saying. The spirit of King Yahweh is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes." the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Just a little... uh, Uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. So, so just to, we're going to break this down. And uh, I don't, hopefully that's not too small. You guys can see that? Yeah? Okay. Um, so this world, this world that we live in, Jesus was telling, was, was declaring, or, or Isaiah was declaring at first, Jesus was agreeing with it. This world is broken because of sin. And, and, and Isaiah gives us four categories of ways in which our world is broken. Ways in which we experience difficulty, pain, trouble, trials, and so on in, in our lives. Right? So, so uh, he says this is good news came to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So we've got poor, brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, those last two captives and prisoners sound kind of almost synonymous but what we, what we actually have here just, um, and, and, in, and Luke translates it as uh, recovery of sight for the blind, is what Luke, what we find in Luke, right? Recovery of sight for the blind. And that's because um, in, an, in an older version of this passage than what many of our modern translations are based on, it actually, it actually says that, recovery of sight for the blind. And this word, um, uh, opening, um, rele- this word releasing, releasing from darkness, 
is every other place in the Old Testament that it's used, that word releasing, is releasing from either blindness or deafness. And so it's, it's probable that the, the, the original prophecy that was given actually spoke about releasing from darkness for, for those who are blind. Okay? So, so we're going to go with that because Jesus said blind according to, uh, to Luke. So we're going to go with that translation. Is that fair? We're going to trust Jesus this morning? All right. Um, so we've got four categories of, of pain in our world that are spoken of by Isaiah. And the word poor that's used here doesn't just mean financially having a rough time, although it includes that. But it can mean impoverished financially. It can mean humble or meek. In other words, the, the kind of the downtrodden, the, the lower class. Um, it can mean afflicted, those afflicted by disease. It can mean those who are depressed. It can, it can have all those meanings. So that's a pretty broad category, isn't it? Those who are impoverished in their hearts by those things that come into their lives, right? By the brokenhearted, by those, uh, uh, the, the brokenhearted, those who uh, have experienced tragedy, disappointment, loss, pain. He speaks of captives, those who are either captives physically, right? Those who are in prison for some reason, legitimate or illegitimate, those who are prisoners of war, those who are prisoners of oppression, but those who are prisoners of addiction, those who are prisoners of the lies of the enemy, being chained up and, and, and caught in a trap by the enemy, right? And those who are blind either physically or spiritually, blinded to the truths that set them free. Lost in darkness, stumbling around, as Proverbs chapter 4 says, stumbling around in the darkness, not knowing what makes them stumble. Right? So, one of the biggest questions in all of history, I said this last week, one of the biggest questions in all of history it's been looked at by every philosopher, by every, every religious system, is this question of what do we do with pain? If God is good, if there is a God, and God is good, and God loves us, what do we do with pain? How does that fit into our understanding of the world? It's a really tough question, isn't it? It's a question a lot of people have. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that there is pain in this world. We're going we're gonna to unpack that a little bit this morning and, and more over the next few weeks as we walk through this. But the Bible is very honest about pain. We look at some of the other religious systems in the world, ways that Faiths and religions have looked at pain. Um, they're very different. Is, Islam's answer 
to pain is to blame God. It's to say God is re- pain is real and God did it to you. He planned it for you. Right? Because one, one of the key tenets of Islam is everything is as God wills it. That's not, a Christ, that's not good Christian theology, but that's Islam theology. Everything is as God wills it. So if, if, if there's loss and pain and sickness and disease and things that come into your life that happen, God planned it and purposed it for you. That's, that's pretty dark, in my opinion, right? Buddhism's answer to the problem of pain is avoidance. It's to say that pain is only, we only experience pain in this world and in this life because of our attachment to people and to this world and to things. And so if we, if we, detach from the world and we live without significant emotional connection to the things and the people of this world, then we won't have pain. So just unplug from everything and everybody and be absorbed in yourself. That doesn't get you very far, does it? Right? Hinduism, another major religion of the world, One of their key teachings is that pain is illusion. It's not real. It's illusion. Hinduism teaches that we are all gods. We are all part of the divine. And we've just forgotten that. And if we we could just remember that we are divine, then the illusion of pain would disappear. Right? We're trapped in this place where we experience pain because we've forgotten our divinity. Christian science and the Church of Scientology, two cults that are not the same, they're very different. Um, Christian science and the Church of Scientology, two cults that have nothing to do with Christianity truly, um, But both of them say something very similar to this, that we've just forgotten our divinity. We need to remember our divinity and then all illusion of pain will disappear. We can trick ourselves into our pain going away. And in fact, some versions, now hear me clearly this morning, some version, her family could be falling apart around her, but her answer was, blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Now, I, know, I knew this lady enough to know that she believed that if she said anything different than that, she would bring negative things upon herself, her family, and her life because she was confessing the wrong things. But the problem with this teaching is that the Bible doesn't ever downplay the reality of pain. It doesn't. That is not Judeo-Christian theology. That is not a a Jewish-Christian worldview. That's a Hindu worldview. 
almost a third of the book of Psalms is, is the psalmists complaining how rotten their life is and calling out to God saying, God, do you see what's going on? My pain is real. Do you see what's happening to our nation? Do you see what's happening in my life? In fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to complaining about life. It's called Lamentations. Don't make that, you know, your, you don't spend a year in Lamentations in your devotions or you're just going to come away depressed, right? But there's this entire book is dedicated to, to confessing the reality of the pain that we live with in this world. Now, I love Lamentations because right in the center of that book is a hub of truth that everything else rotates around. That God is good and His faithfulness and mercy are new. Through to the other side of the resurrection life of Jesus in the midst of it. We're going to talk more about that next week. But as much as our world, our broken, fallen, sinful world, has all of these elements built into it, right? These, this is the DNA of life in our world, that we experience pain and difficulty and trial. But... As much as that is true about the brokenness of our world that touches all of our lives, the coming kingdom of Jesus has built into it the remedy of every one of these. Right? Jesus, it says in this passage, has been anointed by King Yahweh with an anointing that undoes the curse of sin and all of its effects. Undoes the curse of sin and all of its effects. And because Jesus was anointed by King Yahweh and gave us passed on His anointing to us, passed on His kingdom to us, then by extension as ambassadors of, king, of the kingdom of King Jesus, as carriers of the anointing of the King, as people who work with King Jesus to see His kingdom come on planet Earth, we have authority to work in opposition to the brokenness of our world. We have authority to work in the curse-undoing power of the kingdom of Jesus. We have the authority to bring good news. The gospel, right? To bring good news to the poor, to the downtrodden, to those who, who have been robbed by the enemy in their lives. We have authority to bring good news. We have authority to bind up the broken hearted. 
Come alongside those who are mourning, who are disappointed, who have lost and experienced trauma and tragedy and come alongside them with the authority and the anointing of Jesus' kingdom to bind up their wounds. We have authority to see captives set free. And those who are blind physically or spiritually to be given sight. The kingdom carries in it, in its DNA, the elements of victory over pain, victory over brokenness, victory over captivity and darkness. And the fullness, the fullness of this reality we know will truly only come when Jesus returns and his kingdom is made complete, right? We know that the fullness of that will happen when Jesus comes and he stands on this earth and he begins to remake everything. But even when Jesus walked on the earth the first time, he went around in all that he did, demonstrating the kingdom and seeing people's lives touched by this anointing, by this power that brought good news for the poor, that bound up the brokenhearted, that set captives free and and made the blind to see. So that means that the remedy has begun, but the remedy is also coming. Right? The remedy has begun, but the remedy is also coming coming. Isaiah talks here about, <clears throat> so I've, says the, the, the spirit of, of King Yahweh is upon me to, to declare all of these things and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, don't don't make too much of year and day um, as if one, one lasts for a long time and one is just really short. Because the, the word day, yom, in the Hebrew can actually mean day or age, can mean a lot of things, right? So, so but what we see here, how, how do we have the year of the, of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance coming together? Doesn't that sound contradictory, right? Sounds strange. But he says, the Lord is on me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. So 
let's, let's just take a, a quick look at this. The, the year of the Lord's favor seems to be, most people, most uh, commentators and most uh, teachers would say that, that this is speaking of the year of Jubilee. So we need to just take a moment to talk about what, what is this year of Jubilee. Some of you, some of you already have, have that. You know what it's talking about. Others, maybe not. So let's, let's look at this quickly this morning. In, in the Jewish culture, this is laid out in Leviticus chapter 25, if you want to look it up later. Free to do that. We're not going to, not going to take the time to read it this morning. But uh, Leviticus chapter 25, it lays out the, the, the Jewish years um, that, that every seven years, God insisted on the people having a year of Sabbath, right? So the seventh year, just like there was a Sabbath day, God said, I want there to be a Sabbath year as well. So the seventh year, every seven years, the seventh year was to be a year of rest for the land. So the land was not to be tilled, plowed, planted, reaped. None of that was to happen on the seventh year, every seven years. It was a rest for the land. And, uh, and you know, they obviously had to figure that into their, into their uh, planning ahead, right? How do you not make any money for one year? Well, you, you need to plan ahead, right? Um, and so, so every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. And then every seven sevens, right? Every seven groups of seven years. So 49, do the math, seven times seven, 49, right? At the end of every seven group of seven sevens, there was a year of jubilee, the 50th year. After the seven sevens, 49 years, the trumpet would be blown on the day of, of atonement. The beginning of the next year, the day of atonement, the trumpet would be blown. And in that moment would begin a year of jubilee. Right? And this year of jubilee meant that anyone who had... Um, it was basically an opportunity to, uh, for those who were impoverished, it was kind of like being able to declare bankruptcy and start fresh, right? So, so, if, so in that culture, people, if they, were, if they had come under too much debt, they would sell their property to, to someone. They would sell it from now until, until Jubilee. But at Jubilee, they would get their property back. Right? So it was a way to sell property, make money, pay off your debts, and then the year of Jubilee, you got to start fresh. Or people would actually sell themselves into slavery, right? They would, they would say, I'm going to work for you for basically for food and, and lodging. I'm, I'm going to sell myself into slavery to you to pay for my debts. But in the year of Jubilee, I go free, right? So it was a year when, when slaves were set free, when property was returned. It was a day of blessing and favor. 
It was a, it was a picture for the people of the, of the blessing and grace of God that was coming in Christ. That's what it was. It was a demonstration of the favor and the grace of God. That's why it's called the year of the Lord's favor, right? Um, Time's getting away on us here. So we're going to skip all that. So, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here and not yet, and jubilee is a foreshadowing of the kingdom, grace and mercy and goodness of God. Jesus said it was fulfilled in him. He is the jubilee. Jesus is our freedom from slavery to sin. He's our freedom from our debts. Jesus is jubilee, right? And the jubilee will be fully made reality when Jesus returns. Jubilee for those who are oppressed is also the day of vengeance of God on the oppressors. Does that make sense? The day that is the ultimate freedom for those who have been downtrodden is the day of ultimate judgment for those who have been doing the downtrodding. Right? When Jesus returns, there is a day of jubilee coming, but there's also a day of vengeance coming. Right? When the teams of people that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10, sent them out to go and, and minister, he sent 70, 70 people out in teams of two to go into towns, minister. He said, declare the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, do the work that, that I've been doing, Jesus said. And when they came back to report what had happened, and they said, Jesus, we laid hands on people and they were healed. We, we cast out demons and people were set free. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's a strange thing to say, right? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Why did he say that? Because every kingdom breakthrough is a moment of vengeance upon the kingdom of darkness. That's worth saying again. Every kingdom breakthrough is a moment of judgment upon the kingdom of darkness. Every healing, every salvation, every deliverance is a little jubilee and a little judgment upon the enemy. And in the end, when Jesus returns, he will right every wrong. And that is good news for the wronged, but bad news for the kingdom of darkness and those who have aligned themselves with it. Right? Thing is, we should be careful not to assume too quickly that we are entirely on one side of that equation and not at all on the other side of it. 
David wrote in Psalm 139, in verse 23 and 24, and he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. David was wise enough to know that there was, that, that, that darkness probably had some tentacles in him had a hold on parts of his heart, and he needed, to, he needed to ask God to come and examine his heart. Now, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, yes, you're going to heaven. Yes, yes, there is a reward waiting for you. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that our works will be tested by fire And some of us might come through just by the skin of our teeth with no, with no jewels to show Jesus, right? Why? Because, because we've not examined our hearts before the day of vengeance, right? So we're called, we're invited to come to Jesus, yes, for our freedom, yes, for our hope, but that Jesus would free us from, from anything, any place where the enemy has got his, his, his claws into us, right? We want to be free. We can be free. And we can be carriers of the freedom of Jesus, not only for ourselves, but for those. How many know there are people all around us that need freedom from captivity and darkness and pain and brokenheartedness, right? And so Jesus, so, so this passage says, That we have it, we have the ability, we have the anointing, we have, we're able to comfort those who mourn. Comfort those who are walking through pain in this world and in this life. To comfort them, how? It says to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning. Garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This, this picture that we're being given is, is, is a very accurate picture of what it meant to mourn in this culture. That they would take off their good Sunday clothes and they would put on sackcloth. Right? That's, that's like burlap. It's not very fashionable, and it's not very comfortable. And that was the point. Because they wanted the world to know, I'm in pain right now. And they would tear their clothes, and they would cover themselves in ashes. And everyone knew that they were in despair. 
But Jesus said, my kingdom will bring hope to those who are in that collapsed ball of despair on the ground in ashes and burlap. And instead, we'll, we'll pick them up and give them a crown of beauty and oil to clean them up Make them shine and clothes that are dignified. Because when we come to Jesus and we bring him our mourning and our pain, he takes us through to a place of purpose. The power of the biblical Christian response to pain is that we don't deny the pain, but we know, first of all, God isn't doing this to me. And second of all, God will not waste it. But He's going to use this to bring me through to a place where where my life is going to be more beautiful and more joyful and more and more uh, alive than I possibly could have ever done if I hadn't walked through these, this difficult experience. God doesn't do evil for us or plan evil for us, but He's big enough and loving enough to take the evil that happens to us and use it for our strengthening and our healing. How many know what that is? How many can smell it even as you're looking at it? Right? Those who are not farmers or gardeners look at a steaming pile of manure and all we may think is how stinky and gross and repulsive it is. We maybe can't think of a more disgusting place to be in than in or near a manure pile, right? Pretty gross. There aren't many, uh, there aren't many farms around here. There's a few, but not many compared to, I, I grew up uh, in farming country all my life. And in fact, the, the homes where, that my parents rented, uh, we moved around a fair bit when I was a little kid, and, and the, the houses my parents rented when I was a kid, six of them were either on a farm or, or right next door to a farm. The smells of manure were a daily reality for me growing up. And uh, I actually had friends come and visit from the city, from out of town, you know, from away, and, and would say, what is that smell? And I would say, what smell? Right? Because it was just, you get used to it. And I just, after a while, you don't smell it anymore. And, uh, and I had a, a couple really gross run-ins with manure. When I, was, when I was four years old, we lived on one of these places. And, and my parents had chickens. But to get to the chicken coop, you had to go through the cow pen. Right? And my mom sent me, four years old, one morning, 
to go get the eggs from the chicken coop. And this was, her, this was really scary for me because there, there was a rooster there that would chase me. I had, I had recurring dreams about this rooster that would chase me. And uh, so I went in this morning, and I, I remember this vividly. I was only four, but I remember it vividly. I went in to get the eggs. I get the eggs, and I'm coming out, and there's the rooster. Right? And he starts chasing me, and I start running. And I trip. And I fall into a, the freshest cow patty you've ever seen and slide through it. I mean, I am coated in cow manure. And I get to the door of my house and, and, uh, and mom's like, get out, you know, you're not coming in here. And she grabbed a, she grabbed a, I remember her grabbing this, this little uh, waste basket out of the house and bringing it out and she put like water, you know, soap and water and she she cleaned me, this little four-year-old kid cleaned me off uh, in this waste bucket and got all the manure off me so I could go in the house again. I don't know what happened to the eggs, but I don't think they survived. Um, and then uh, a few years later, I was, uh, I was probably about 15. We lived across the road from a, a farming family. And uh, I knew some things about the farm, but I didn't know enough about the farm, apparently. So I'm over there playing. It's summertime, playing with the kids across the road, and I had a bit of a crush on one of the, one of the daughters, right? So, so we're, we're standing around this. It's like a, it was a pit. It's a, like a silo, kind of a low silo thing, and it, it was a, I didn't know what it was. It was just a pit. But it was a liquid manure pit. But when I looked down, and we're all standing there just looking into this pit, and there's some foam in the top. It, it kind of looked like cement to me. You know how you, know, you get clumpy cement sometimes when it's poured and there's a little... It looked like cement to me. And I wanted to impress this girl that I, I could do anything. So without any, any, you know, warning, I jump into the pit. And I hear, as I'm going down, I'm, I hear, what are you doing? And when my feet went past what I thought was the floor and kept going, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't jump far enough, you know, too far, and I was able, as I was sinking into this, able to spin around and grab the, there were steps, like, like you know, grab the, the step before I went all the way in. But I was about this far into liquid manure. And uh, the girl that I thought I was impressing wasn't, you know, she was laughing at me instead of being impressed. And, uh, and I crawled out of that embarrassed and gross and stinky and uh, and they hosed me off and I don't know you know I don't know how I got in my house after that I don't think my clothes went in with me but uh, gross eh gross 
Um, you know, these events are burned in my memory because of how disgusting and embarrassing they were. There aren't many more gross things that we can think of experiencing. And yet, to a farmer, a pile of manure is almost worth its weight in gold. Right? Because it is, you know, they, 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 they spread it on the field, they plow it into the field, and it makes the soil rich. It makes the soil uh, productive. And the very thing that is disgusting and none of us would want to wade through it is actually the thing that brings richness and productivity in life, right? God's main goal in your life is not to make your life pleasurable, comfortable, or trouble-free. That's our goal, but that's not His goal. His goal is to make us productive and fruitful and to shine brightly His kingdom in this world. Jesus said, in this world you will, will have trouble. But take heart. Be of good cheer. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. Every trouble that you experience, God has, has injected it with purpose. Every problem that you experience, God has put purpose in it because He's going to use it like good manure to, to, to cause your life to become rich and productive. He's going he's to turn it upside down and use what feels gross and disgusting and repulsive to us in our lives. He's going to use it to bring about our wholeness and our, our productivity and, and that we will shine more beautifully and more brightly His glory and His kingdom in this world than we ever could have if we hadn't walked through the muck of what we walked through. And what the, enemy, what, what the enemy intends to use in our lives to discourage and defeat us, God is at work using to grow us and mature us and make us what he wants us to be. And that he actually, his goal is to make us an oak of righteousness. As the passage says, to make us Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Bring about fruitfulness from our lives to display His splendor. So folks, as we walk through this series in the next few weeks, We're going to talk pretty openly and honestly about the manure. We're going to talk about the muck of life, the stuff that we, none of us wants to walk through. And yet the Bible tells us to embrace it and even count it pure joy. It's kind of mind-bending. 
Why? Because it brings about our wholeness and our intended beauty. It makes us what God intends for us to be as He uses it. Gives us a crown of joy. Crown of beauty instead of ashes. Oil of joy instead of mourning. And the other one. Something instead of despair. Sorry, I just, my mind went blank. And a garment of praise. There we go. Garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Some of you remember that song. Let's stand. We have a team who uh, is prepared to, to pray with you today. Maybe you're right. Maybe some of you need to take this, this series that we're doing and store it up. Because you're walking through a season of blessing, season of encouragement. You need to take it and store it up. Because you will come into a season at some point that is hard and difficult. But maybe some of you today, right now today, you are in the middle of the muck. You slid through a cow patty this week. I don't know. You're in the middle of the muck and you need someone to come alongside you and minister kingdom authority into your life. Don't walk away today before you make an opportunity for Jesus to apply his kingdom to your life. Let me pray with you. If you need to go, you're free to go, but uh, I encourage you to stick around and worship with us as, uh, uh, as Natalie leads and, uh, and, and come and receive prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness, and your goodness. Thank you that you're at work in our lives in every season. You are our hope. You are our strength. God, I thank you that, that as we run to you, we can find the remedy for the pain that we experience in this world and in this life. Thank you that you are our, you're our healer, you're our savior, you're our rescuer, that you have a purpose and a plan even in the midst of our pain. So God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would move in lives, move in our hearts, that you would draw us closer to you, that we would be willing to surrender every situation into your hands that you would have your way in us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' powerful name, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have an awesome week. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true.